Stop me if you've heard this one before. Lawyer moves into a small town. They're the only lawyer in town. Business is slow. Despite having meetings with business leaders and others about how thoughtful documents and careful law can make their lives better, it's really hard to find clients. And then one day, a second lawyer moves into town and everything changes. Hey, it's Seth. And this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about making change happen. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hi, Seth. This is an ad for the Gulabis. We are a group of women who migrated to the U.S. 25 to 30 years ago. We're professional women who want to give back. And we focus on fundraising for health education, and hunger. We currently have a Bollywood dance fundraiser going on. I hope you'll join us. Look us up at Gulabis, G-U-L as in Larry, A, B as in boy, I, S as in Sam, dot O-R-G. Thanks. Yes, you've heard the story before because it's supposed to make fun of lawyers, but there's more than a small germ of truth to it. Once there's two lawyers in a town, everything changes because once one party has a lawyer, the other one needs one. Once there is a situation where you think the other party might need a lawyer, you need one too. Suddenly, it's not about did that person study really hard in law school or is it the moral or correct or forthright thing to do? It's simply everyone has one and we need one too. So how is it that we make change happen, particularly in organizations? Well, think about what your mission would be if your goal was to create better workplace culture, if your goal was to get organizations to see and respect their employees, give them a chance to shine, create an environment where they could do their best work. Well, one way you could do it is by having one meeting after another with leaders, helping them see the benefits that come from having an engaged, powerful workforce. The other thing you could do is create a list of the best places to work in the United States. Partner with a magazine. Get the magazine every year to run the results of your nationwide study. Within just a couple years, businesses are going to start to notice that they're not on the list or going to start to benefit from being on the list. It's the list itself and the tension that it creates that ends up getting people to pay attention. Most of them weren't paying attention when you were standing there telling them that it was the right thing to do. But they are paying attention because they care, as I've said before, about affiliation and about status roles. Not being on the list is hard to justify to your boss. Not being on the list exposes you to fear and to risk. Not being on the list means that you are left out, left behind. You need to be on the list. Not only do you need to be on the list, but if you care about status, as so many people in our culture do, you need to move up on the list. You don't want to report to your peers and your boss that you're moving down on the list. And so now you start to notice what it takes to move up on the list, and you start to game the system. You start to come up with ways to have your employees believe that it's a better place to work. And you might discover that one of the ways to do that is to actually make your place of employment, a better place to work. The essence of cultural change 
comes down to a simple sentence of you can't do it by yourself. That there are lots of things that we can enjoy doing completely by ourselves, but then they are not part of culture. Culture and community are about status and affiliation. And there is no status if you're by yourself, and there is no affiliation if you are by yourself. But when we create networks, this network effect we built is far more powerful than some cleverly named internet social network. It actually informs the way almost all organizations act. It affects philanthropy. It affects governance. It affects politics. People like us do things like this. Who is next to me? Who is to my left? And who is to my right? In 1990, I came out of retirement from my work at a summer camp up north, and I worked with Joanne, granddaughter of the founder, and the two of us stepped in to bring this summer camp back from a near-death experience. Well, that summer, there were 90 staff members. Most of them had never met me. They were between 17 and 21 years old. People of that age up there for the summer, maybe their first priority is not figuring out how to create an environment conducive to the kind of place we were trying to run. I brought with me a big, big stack of post-its. They were pink in color, and I had gotten the idea from my friend Zig Ziglar. And on the post-its, it said, I like blank because blank. And what I did for the first five days was I sought to catch people doing something right. That if one of my staff members did something right, I took out a pink slip and I wrote it on there and I handed it to them. And I got to say, the first five or six or seven people who got a pink slip from me, a 30-year-old, rolled their eyes as hard as they could. They weren't there to get approval from me. They were there to enjoy their summer. But I persisted. And then something extraordinary happened. People started to say to me, hey, how do I get one of those pink slips? And within a couple days, you could see that the clipboards being carried around by the cool kids were festooned with pink little post-its. Why? Because it became a symbol of affiliation and then status. Because once people began to understand that this is what it was like around here, it's something that they wanted to be part of. That what we do when we bring a new idea to a community is not say, here it is, it's great, everyone loves it. What we do is we create tension. Tension because people are inherently afraid of change. And your new idea, your new book, your new project, your new nonprofit, your new conference, it represents at some level a threat. What if I go? What if I don't go? What if it's better than I thought? What if it's not as good as I thought? What if it works? What if it doesn't work? These all create tension. That is what change is. And this tension can be used as a force for good. It can be used to help change things for the better. And so when we get back to this idea of the first lawyer in town, I think a lawyer who's doing really good work can look themselves in the eye and say, I have made things better for my clients. But it is also true that you are far more likely to get clients and far more likely to have those clients do the right thing when they understand that affiliation and status are on the line. So what we have the opportunity to do when we bring our new ideas to the world is to create those situations, to organize 
the playing field for possibility. We can do this on purpose to create systems and yes, networks where it is better to be part of it than not be part of it, where we can overcome the status quo, which is there for a reason because it's good at being there. We can overcome it in this moment, not by persuading people that our new thing is better, but simply by helping them understand that they want to be part of something, helping them understand that they don't want to fall behind, helping them understand that this is a great story, a story to tell yourself and a story to tell your boss. Yes, it's easy to use these tools to manipulate people to get them something they don't want. And our culture is filled with examples of that, with people who become addicted to a thing or an idea and it ends up hurting them but that's not what you're going to do because you're people like us. This is a chance to make things better by making better things. And those better things, they work when we show up in community for community and by community and with community to give them what they seek. And what they seek is affiliation and status. So that's a short rant. I hope it resonates. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes, but first, Here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. Can't wait to see what you've got going on. Hey, Seth, it's Maria. Hey, Seth, my name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth, this is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I do... Love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Three really juicy questions this week. Here we go. Hey, Seth, this is Mickey in Atlanta. You've mentioned a few times that you don't go to meetings, something many of us are envious of. However, I don't think it's as simple as that, as I'm sure you have many conversations with people, and meetings versus conversations can sometimes get blurred. I know for me, my best meetings feel like conversations, but some light conversations can end up feeling more like meetings. When you were on Jen and Pete's The Long and the Short of It podcast a while back, these ideas intersected. At one point, you clearly stated, quote, and I don't go to meetings. But another time, Jen recalled a, I guess we'll say a gathering of you and various Akimbo alums where she said, quote, and I frantically tried to scribble down every single thing you said during that meeting. So what do you see as the difference between a planned conversation and a meeting? Or would you frame it differently than that? 
I like this question because it gives me a chance to pontificate about a rant and also because semantics are always interesting to me. I define a meeting as an event in which a person, an organization with power, insisted that other people come so they could tell them something. That's different than a conversation in which people are voluntarily engaging with each other, going back and forth to learn from each other. So technically, yeah, I go to meetings now and then because there's some sort of upside in the long run for the people I am meeting with or for me that makes it worth me showing up. But too many people who are listening to this go to meetings all day. And they don't go to meetings because they want to. They go to meetings because that's the way it's done around here. And so part of my rant is that we should try canceling those meetings and send a memo instead. So the short definition of a meeting is you could have sent a memo, but you didn't because you had the power to make people listen to you in real time. So conversations, sign me up. Meetings, I'd rather save the time and write a better memo. Hi, Seth. It's Tracy from Ohio. I recently listened to your podcast on podcast ads, and I appreciate your comments about production quality versus live reads and how locations for serving ads has become so much more diverse. I actually grew up, so to speak, on Madison Avenue at a big agency that did a lot of fancy TV, um, you know, client boondoggle trips to private Caribbean islands for a sun lotion ad were quite common and fun. But my career has morphed into the very targeted spaces of the digital world. And I am interested in your thoughts about trusting the messenger and trust and influence. With, with more content being served as advertorial and ads appearing or being broadcast on very targeted channels, it seems like the impact on of an ad is... is dependent on trust in the messenger as much as the content itself. And the trust is built on information integrity, which can circle back to the source. Do you think that the podcast environment and other digital information resources generate successful engagement through trust as much or more than production value? or that trust and the integrity of the information is part of production, that production of value equation nowadays. Thanks so much. Thank you for this, Tracy. Yes, there's marketing, there's advertising, they're not the same thing. The essence of marketing is stories that spread. People like us do things like this, creating remarkable goods and services that other people want to talk about. In certain circumstances, advertising can amplify that. And advertising used to be a simple, really straightforward calculus. Buy all the ads you can afford, you'll probably make enough money to buy more ads. The end. But now, advertising is different because of the long tail, because of the death of the network, because you can't take people's attention just because you want to. Even if you pay the money, even if you get it in front of people, they will probably ignore it because it's so much easier to ignore it than it ever was before. So if the essence of marketing is the network effect and conversation and community, the essence of advertising is trust. Why will I choose to pay my attention to you? Well, too many people in advertising don't realize that trust is the entire point. Don't launch a product with advertising if it's not worth 
middle people, intermediaries, giving up their trust to let the message get out to the world. Don't launch something you're not proud of. Don't create ads that annoy for no good reason other than to steal attention. Don't spam. Don't rely on sneaking around to somehow steal a little bit of attention. Instead, figure out who can you double date? Where are the intermediaries where they have earned trust and you can show up with a worthwhile message and some money and share some of that trust? So the only reason I can think of to advertise on a podcast, the only reason is because the people who listen to that podcast trust that podcast because they are choosing to listen. And a podcast that will take an ad from anyone isn't a podcast you want to run your ad on because they are trading trust for cash and attention. And that doesn't last very long. Hi, I have a second question about the Lemonade Stand episode. So do you think it's possible to shape the internet experiences of the majority of U.S. youth that spend three plus hours a day playing social games? Do you think that it's possible to have or there already exists this kind of like offboarding ramp from things like Roblox, for example, into a social community online that doesn't have the stimulation of a game necessarily, but still gives them that community? Or do you think that once we've associated the stimulation of social gaming with the internet, that it's really hard to downgrade from there? And so I'm wondering, do we say that the ship has sailed on us being able to dial that down for most kids? You know, even if as a community, you know, I will dial it down for my children, not interested, <laughs> but as a community, if we wanted to help shape the interaction of social gaming for the kids, is, is it possible for them to get a net positive out of something like Roblox? Thank you for this heartfelt question, Katie. I edited it a little bit for length. I hope that's okay. You're talking about several things all at once here. One of them is the idea that corporations sooner or later find that there might be divergence between what is the best for their users slash customers and what is the best for their shareholders, at least in the short run. Second, in a competitive environment, when some people are racing to the bottom, it might be hard to race to the top. I don't think we can compare Grand Theft Auto to Roblox, though. It is essentially helping lots of kids find something that engages them in a positive way. But the other point you're bringing up is that as soon as we have unfiltered community, there is going to be a problem, particularly if children are involved. Because we assert, I think incorrectly, that adults know how to filter on their own. We don't. But kids, nobody believes that kids are that good at filtering. And so, yeah, there's a problem. And the problem is when we get kids emotionally engaged in something, where they are engaging with their peers and possible non-peers without significant supervision, the culture is going to shift and it's going to shift in a way that some parents aren't comfortable with. And one of the things that parents do is they find a neighborhood, whether it's geographic or virtual, where they have a sense about who their kids are engaging with. And I don't think we're even close to a world where we can say, to an eight-year-old or a 12-year-old, here, unattended, 
Go hang out with other people. I have no idea who they are. We'll see you in a few hours because that adds up. And culture is the byproduct of how we spend our time and who we engage with. And our society, particularly in this country, keeps leaning into how can I raise kids without raising kids? And too often, people who have gotten the short end of the stick when it comes to caste, when it comes to being given a fair chance economically, have very little choice but to outsource some of the time that they need to be spending with their kids. It's not fair and it's not helpful. But we are now living in a world where we're going to have to find ways for our kids to engage with other kids in a way that doesn't require our vigilant, constant supervision. And I'm not sure it's as easy as dropping them off at the library and putting them in front of a terminal connected to the internet. But culture and society are fairly resilient, and I am optimistic that we will work our way through this, but I agree with you. I think that vigilance is helpful. Panic is not, but vigilance and being really thoughtful about talking to our kids, whether or not they want us to talk to them, about who they're engaging with and what sort of engagements they're having, I think that's part of the deal. I think there's probably nothing more important in the development of a kid than who those kids' friends are. And wherever they find those friends, they're still friends. And we become the average of the people we spend time with. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. It's not too late. Hey, it's Seth. About 16 years ago, I wrote my first post about climate change. And since then, every single metric has gotten worse. But it's not too late. What we need to do is shift it from a me problem to a we problem. And my new project is not my new project. It's our new project. More than 300 volunteers from 40 countries around the world have spent the last bunch of months putting together the Carbon Almanac. It's not coming out till June, but you, my loyal Akimbo listeners, I wanted you to see it and hear about it first. Check out thecarbonalmanac.org for all the details. Thank you for caring enough to make a difference.